Last week we launched a series called the Cornerstone Ministry Pillars, uh, which gives us an opportunity to consider the philosophy of ministry for our church. And the word pillar we shared last week was a, a fitting term that, according to Webster, was a firm, upright support for a superstructure. The church, we said, is a massive superstructure. And yet we know that without a foundation, it doesn't matter how well our structure is built, it will not be able to stand. And so we talked about the importance of a foundation and determined that our statement of faith um, provides that foundation for all that we do as a church. It is important that our foundation is on Christ and the gospel and the full counsel and the sufficiency of of the Word of God, and I rejoice that our statement of faith reflects that, and pillars we shared have to rest on something, right? They cannot stand on their own, and we need a firm foundation. And we began our series with the first ministry pillar, which was praising God with passion, and we looked at a number of passages together, and we defined the term praising and affirmed that praising God is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. And we desire that all the ministries of our church would engage in the activity of exalting, worshiping, uplifting, praising God. And we talked about the basis for praising God as we briefly considered the, the person of God and the works of God, which demonstrate the awesome reality of who God is. He offers us many attributes that are worthy of praise, and we mentioned communicable and incommunicable attributes. We finished our time together uh, considering the biblical expressions of praising, and we saw how musical instruments can be used to, to lead in praise, right? To offer God praise through instruments. We also considered the physical expressions of praising God. Singing, clapping, dancing, lifting of hands, right? Bowing, kneeling, standing, and on. A few others that the Bible provides for us as expressions. And we affirm that we want to be and continue to be a praising church. And all God's people said amen, right? And we want to do that freely, we want to have the opportunity when we gather and we come in that we can praise God with our, with our entire being. That there are no restrictions. That we're not limited to uh, what people might think. The person to our left, to the right. That we would be engaged. And that we'd be active. Because it is an activity. Well, this week we're going to consider another pillar for our ministry at CBC, and it's this, preaching and teaching the Word with precision. Can you think back to the very first sermon that you've ever heard? Can you recall that time? Maybe you can. Maybe it's a memory that you would rather not recall. Or maybe it's something that you can't even think back to because you were, were a child and maybe brought in by your parents and you don't re remember. Regardless of your background, there's a reason that Bible-based churches have preachers who preach and why they stand up Sunday after Sunday to proclaim God's Word. And there's also a biblical explanation why some churches don't do that. If preaching and teaching the Word with precision is important to God, and it is, and if it's important to our church, and it is, then it will serve us well to understand why our philosophy of ministry desires to infuse it into every aspect of the ministries that take place here. It will also allow us to be equipped to disciple and explain to others why it is vital to the spiritual growth and vitality of the ministry. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
And here the Apostle Paul is writing his last of 13 New Testament epistles that the Lord used him to record. And he's writing a second letter to Timothy, whom the Apostle Paul, as you know, discipled and encouraged. And God used the first letter in great measure as it really served as a shepherd's manual to Timothy and also serves as a shepherd's manual for us today in the church age. And 1 Timothy includes instructions on false doctrine while emphasizing the true doctrine that Paul shared with Timothy. And it provides instructions for the church on the importance of prayer and on roles for women and the qualifications for church leadership. It gives descriptions of false teachers as well as the pastoral responsibilities that come along when dealing with sinning members and widows and accusations that can arise against elders and even talks about how to deal with slaves. And it concludes with instruction on the character of the man of God and the proper handling of both treasure and truth. And after Paul's first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul then wrote Titus, which in many ways reflects the importance of doctrine and teaching, much like his first letter to Timothy. And the Lord used the Apostle Paul to make sure that leadership in the church and preaching and teaching in the church were firmly established. And then we come to Paul's final letter that he would ever record. And Paul knew that his earthly life was coming to an end. And even in chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8, he shares, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And I don't think it's any coincidence that these were some of the Apostle Paul's shortest letters that he wrote at the end of his life. Titus was only three chapters. Second Timothy here is only four chapters. And, and outside of the little memo to Philemon, we can see that as a result of Paul getting older, his eyesight getting worse, his energy was fading. What would Paul's heart be burdened to share with Timothy given this context? His last letter in his last section as he was led by the Holy Spirit. What would he say? Let's read it together starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Last week, our pillar demanded that we survey and consider a number of passages. And I'm grateful that this week there is one primary passage that will feature and cover the significance of preaching and teaching the Word with precision. Although we'll consider some other texts. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5 through 5 really provides the who, the what, the when, 
the how and the why for expository preaching. In verse 5, um, we'll get a chance to look at at the, at the end, but um, in your notes you'll notice that there are actually five verses that will enable us to answer five questions as we consider the importance and need of preaching and teaching the word with precision at our church, okay? They should be listed for you. Everybody got them? Are they in your bulletin? The questions that are mapped out? Question number one is this. Who is responsible for preaching the preaching of the word? Number two, what does the ministry consist of? When should it take place? How is it practiced? And why is it so important? Let's begin and start by asking then answering the first question. Who is responsible for the preaching of the word? And in the immediate context, the Apostle Paul is addressing Timothy and begins verse 1 with a forceful directive by saying, I solemnly charge you. And his message is directed straight to the heart of Timothy. And this should come as no surprise, really, because the entire letter was, was written to Timothy. But the ministry ripple effect of Paul's first and second letters would no doubt reach many others in Timothy's church and the surrounding New Testament churches that were being established in Ephesus and beyond. And Paul chose very strong language when he said, I solemnly charge you. And there are two other places where the Holy Spirit led Paul to use the same Greek expression while addressing Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, Paul provides instruction on handling accusations against elders. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul encourages Timothy to use this expression while addressing the faithful men that Timothy would be instructing. He says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so in all three instances where Paul uses this Greek expression is to convey a serious tone, a heightened sensitivity due to the subject matter. And as parents, we do this on a regular basis with our kids. You know, if there's something that's important and Imagine, you know, you pull up to the curb to drop them off at school and there's an important meeting that is to follow up, maybe a doctor's appointment, and you might give them a solemn charge and say, listen to me, when school is finished, I need you to come right back out to the car, right here to the curb, and meet me right here, okay? To get their attention and to remind them of God's presence in the seriousness of what he was sharing, Paul actually even says, uh, says this in, in all three occurrences. In, in 5.21, Paul said, in the presence of God. In 2 Timothy 2.14, uh, actually uh, 5.21, 1 Timothy 5.21 says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels. And then in 2 Timothy 2.14, it says, in the presence of God. And now in our opening verse of 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to share the same thing only with, along with a mini exposition of Christ when he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he uses this to, to, to feature the significance of, and the seriousness of what he's about to share. All of this was intended to encourage Timothy and the men that he was instructing. 
and subsequently us today. Corum Deo is a Latin phrase that refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. And God used the Apostle Paul to feature this reality for Timothy and for us. And there are divine precepts and implications connected to everyone when it comes to preaching and teaching the word with precision. And one commentator had this to say. Although directed, first of all, to Timothy, Paul's commission in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, applies to every minister of the gospel in every age, every place, and every circumstance. In a broader view, it can be supplied applied to every faithful believer because it is essential for every congregation to know and understand this charge. Churches are responsible under God and with God to hold their pastors, their preachers, and teachers accountable. And so when we answer the question, who is responsible for the preaching of the word without question... Those who are preaching and teaching are responsible before the Lord and are going to give an account. And we see this accurately spelled out for us in James 3.1 that says, Let not many of you become teachers. Why would it say that? Because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. God is going to put your teaching under the microscope. One theologian expressed it this way. We are continually overwhelmed by the responsibility and liability that possess the preacher of God's word. We look with indignation at the lawyer or judge who for the motive of personal wealth distorts the truth and attacking the reputation and personal possessions of people while reducing them to poverty. We respond with similar indignation to the quack doctor who by incompetence hazards the health and life of someone for the purpose of financial gain. Such people deserve to be considered criminals. The pain and loss of their victims should rightly be laid to their account. Offering oneself this way as the counselor or healer to care for someone in a time of crisis and then making havoc of their lives through negligence, lack of skill, or selfish greed is unconscionable. Medical and legal associations have set standards in an attempt to prevent such malpractice. But what about the purveyors of God's truth, the physicians of the soul? Shall we not, shall we not be held responsible to God for any perversion of the truth, however witless, and for our negligence and lack of precision? What earthly regulatory association validates us? Do not we who preach God's word face a higher court than the legal bar or any medical tribunal? No profession has as high a liability potential as that of the preacher of God's word. God will judge every preacher on the truthfulness and accuracy of his preaching. Any failure as a spokesman for God brings not only shame, 2 Timothy 2.15, but judgment. The Holy Spirit has written that all who pastor God's flock must give an account. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. There will be a day of reckoning for the preacher. Only a certain kind of man then has the right to be considered a lawyer, a judge, or a physician. The standard is significantly higher for the preacher. And this is incredibly humbling. Frightening, really. It is. And it should cause, it causes me, and it should cause every single person that would have the opportunity to open up God's word, to preach, and to teach it to fall dependently upon him. And to consider the reality of the task, and that it is quorum deo, that it is before God's face, and that there will be an account. We must strive to make sure that we preach truth and that there's a commitment to God's word. Yet, I do believe 
that God calls listeners to be responsible and to help bear this burden. He does. He, he, we, we need the help of others. And you can bear the burden. The listener bears the burden with the teacher of the word. A Berean-like heartbeat that is reflected in Acts chapter 17. Turn there with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17, because this will, this will be a blessing to, to see this. Acts chapter 17, okay? Starting in verse 10, this is what it says. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to... Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And just Notice the descriptive language that's employed by Luke, used in verse 11 to describe the, the Bereans. They were first described as noble-minded, which could be related to their social status, but I believe the, the Greek word can also be translated uh, open-minded. And I'm inclined to believe that there was a humility and a teachability present and the remaining portion of the verse helps us to see it. They received the word with great eagerness. Or it could also be translated, accepted, listened. They welcomed it with great eagerness or readiness of mind. They knew the word. And I love this last description that Luke shares. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Which can also be translated searching, or they were investigating the scriptures to see if these things were so. They were in every sense committed to the word. In every sense, there was a commitment. And what was the fruit of their commitment? What did it produce? It provided a level of accountability to the people who were bringing that instruction. And so as we consider this as a ministry pillar for our church, preaching the word with precision, who is responsible for the preaching of the word? Who's responsible? Certainly, the person that stands before with the open Bible, right, and the person up there doing the preaching and teaching falls a heavy burden upon their shoulders, as it should, yet our church will be strengthened if that responsibility is shared by everyone. And so what can this look like practically for our church? I alluded to this last Sunday at the State of the Church meeting that we had during the equipping hour. And we want to encourage everyone who preaches and teaches, no matter what ministry it's in. Children's ministries, student ministries, ministries that may not even exist yet, care group, super care group meetings, retreats, whatever it is. We want them to be ready. And how can you be ready? This is something that uh, we, we, is provided in training and it's something as we meet with the teachers uh, Art, Art has uh, coordinated a meeting with uh, children's ministries we're going to actually have a chance to unpack this but we, we, we want to pray well right we know that we, we need to, 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 to pray um, with passion to pray with fervency before we handle God's word we want to prepare well right prepare perceptively we want to study it we want to see what it is and, and know and understand what it is that we're teaching. And then we, we want to produce something, right? We have to have a message, okay, that we're going to share, that we're going to deliver to our hearers. And then we have an opportunity to herald it, to proclaim it, to teach it. 
Pray, prepare, produce, proclaim. And we also want to provide regular feedback and ongoing training for those who preach and teach to help them grow and develop as teachers. And getting feedback will require those of us who teach to seek it out, to ask for it. And this includes me. And I'll share this just from my heart, straight to yours. I was so blessed by those of you who took time to critique and provide feedback as it related to preaching and the SWOT analysis. Thank you. I I, I want to thank you for doing that. That that blessed me. I want to continue to grow. And even beyond that, we want to make sure that the word is getting handled with precision. We that's all that's something that we all desire. Okay? And so we want to create a proactive ministry culture where there's a willingness to speak up and point out if any time that there's maybe teaching that is inaccurate, unclear, or incomplete, because the spiritual health of our church will be impacted. And of course, this involves going through the proper channels to do that, right? We want to, if you have an opportunity and somebody says something, and then this is me even on a Sunday, would you, would you please uh, approach me? Would you please come to me with that? I'm, everyone in the room has permission to do that, okay? I, I'm asking for that. I want that, okay? Right? If there's something that, just anything, okay? Well, if something's off and you can bear the burden with me. And I, and, and I, I pray and, and really plead with you to, to um, honor the word in that way. It will honor me too, but really to, in the end it's to honor God and to, to honor his word. Well, our first uh, question and answer required a little bit of additional time, but we're going to pick up the pace here and let's get on to question number two. What does this ministry consist of? And we find our answer in the first command of verse 2. And God uses Paul to command Timothy and those who would follow, preach the word. This is its substance. This is what the ministry consists of. And the Greek word keruso, translated preach, can also be translated proclaim, herald, publicly announce. And so what took place in the first century church and what existed in the culture was there were actually heralds, people who would go through as imperial representatives of the authority of the king and they would make their way through the streets and they would publicly announce messages. They would talk about new laws or changes or restrictions for the people. They might talk about the appearing of the king or another important official. They they broadcasted it. But they were merely representatives of their sending authority. In a similar fashion, a preacher and teacher of the word is a herald or proclaimer of a message that has the authority. But they themselves are not the authority. I think we all get that. The message is what carries the weight, not the messenger. And this is what one man wrote about the preacher. He is a messenger, not the originator. He is the sower, not the source. He is a herald, not the authority. He is a steward, not the owner. He is the guide, not the author. He is the server of spiritual food, not the chef. And though preaching is the action that is executed by the messenger it is a divinely appointed means to deliver a divinely appointed message the verb is to preach and the direct object is the word preach the word so what is meant by the word in this verse the greek word logos is a reference to the entire written word of God, which the Apostle Paul referred to in Acts 20, 27, he says that, I declare to you what the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God. And it's something that he just referred to as the sacred writings in the scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. 
But it's also critically important to feature the importance and the magnitude of the gospel message here. And this really was an interesting time for the first century church. They didn't have access to a completed New Testament canon like we do today. Yet they did have an understanding of a complete gospel message. And that's evident in Paul's preaching and what he declares in his other New Testament epistles. They had an understanding in the sense that they saw the fulfillment of the one who was promised in the Old Testament come. They saw him pay the price and die the death that was described in Isaiah 53. They saw him make the atonement. They saw him after the resurrection. They saw the empty tomb. They also received directly from him the commission to make disciples as the dispensation of the church age was inaugurated at Pentecost. Right? And so Paul, when instructing Timothy to preach the word, is challenging him really to use the Old Testament scriptures like he did. While at the same time, the Holy Spirit was superintending 13 different epistles that the Apostle Paul was writing to churches and to men that would one day be established in our New Testament canon. How awesome is that? It's, it's amazing that, that that was all taking place at the same time. And we have access to it. And so, a careful study of the phrase logos theos, which means the word of God in the Greek, finds over 40 uses in the New Testament. And I'm going to try to include the scriptural references for you on the care group uh, growth sheet this week. Since time won't allow us to consider all these passages. But the word of God is equated with the Old Testament in Mark 7.13. It is what Jesus preached in Luke 5.1. It was the message the apostles taught in Acts 4.31 and 6.2. It was the word that the Samaritans received in Acts 8.14, as given by the apostles in Acts 8.25. It was the message the Gentiles received as a preacher by Peter in Acts 11.1. It was the word Paul preached on all three of his missionary journeys, Acts chapters 13 through 19. It was the focus of Luke in the book of Acts, in that it spread rapidly and widely, Acts 6.7, 1224-1920 Paul was careful to tell the Corinthians that he spoke the word as it was given from God and that it had not been adulterated and that it was a manifestation of truth 2 Corinthians 2:17 and 4:2 and Paul also acknowledged that it was the source of his preaching Colossians 1:25 and 1 Thessalonians 2:13 Did you get all those? Did you get them all? Now, that's why I'm going to include them in the care group growth sheet. And we, it would be such a blessing to actually have a chance just, just to see that. But um, um, at, at a later time, you can do that. And as it was with Christ and the apostles, so Scripture is also to be delivered by preachers today in such a way that they can say with confidence, Thus saith the Lord. It is the very substance of what we preach. And our responsibility is to deliver it as it was originally given and intended. And this is what preaching the word consists of. Well, we have seen who is responsible for the preaching of the word. And we've seen what the ministry consists of. Let's answer our third question. When should it take place? And the Lord directs Paul to give Timothy another command in verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. And the command to be ready really carries the idea of, of persistency, vigilance, urgency. And it's followed by the words in season and out of season, which help develop the concept for us. And God used Paul to help Timothy and every preacher and teacher of the word that there needs to be a willingness and readiness to preach the word at any cost at any time. That's what should characterize them. And the idea of seasons was something that the agricultural communities of the day would have understood. Seasons dictated what could be done and when it could be done. With farming and many other 
professions, and that's true for us today. Preaching the word has no obligations to seasons or restrictions. The mandate is to be ready. And we want to be prepared for every opportunity that the Lord would provide for us at this church through the ministries to open up the word and to teach it. It is a pillar for our church. One theologian said this, the faithful preacher must be ready in season and out of season, when it is convenient and when it's not, when it's immediately satisfying and when it's not, when the human perspective when from a human perspective it seems suitable and when it does not, his proclaiming God's word must not be dictated by popular culture and propriety, by tradition, by esteem in the community or even in the church, but solely by the mandate of the Lord. Like Richard Baxter, whom the Lord allowed his heart to be impacted by the mandate shared, I preach as never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. In season and out of season is when preaching and teaching with precision should take place. Okay, so we just got through the when. Who, what, when. How is it practiced? Our last part of verse 2 provides three commands that provide insight as to how preaching is practiced. Immediately following, be ready in season and out of season, it says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And I would probably alter this fourth question. I, I, I put how is it practiced, but how it works. That's a better question. I, w- I wish I would have put that one in instead. It's a little bit more clear. And initially, it might look like these commands are disconnected okay, from the context of preaching the word, but in the original language, it's all one thought, okay? In the Greek, it's, a, it's called a pericope. It's a paragraph, and it represents all one thought of what the author is trying to communicate. So the near context also helps us see more clearly. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this is the last thought that the Holy Spirit had traveled through the Apostle Paul's mind before he began with this solemn charge to Timothy to preach the word. The word we were just told in that passage is capable of teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So it shouldn't come as any surprise when we see similar language used reflecting how preaching the word works. The Greek words translated reprove and rebuke are very similar in meaning, but they are distinct in some ways. Reproving someone carries the idea of correcting doctrine, okay, or practices. A rebuke carries, or a rebuking involves bringing conviction or guilt upon the person. Okay, And so a, a simple way to understand this, um, reproof is dealing with the, the sin. Rebuking targets really the, the heart of the sinner. Okay? And certainly we see this taking place when the word is being preached or taught with precision. And this is the heavy side of preaching. Okay? It involves some weightiness. And when God brings truth to bear on someone's life, there's a, a, a weight, there's a, a, um, a burden uh, that that truth, when, it, when it's delivered to that person, it, 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 it's intended to slow them down and to, to have them feel that. And that's what preaching does so that they can see what God would have them see. And it certainly helps a believer see their need for grace, doesn't it? Amen. They need God's strength. You'll need God's advocacy. As the proclamation of the word brings the truth, the the need for repentance and the renewing of the mind calls us to embrace it 
through the divine enablement that we have in Christ and the enabling power and strength that we have through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Along with the weightiness of reproofing and rebuking, we do receive a third command that helps us to see how preaching and teaching the word with precision works. It exhorts. And God in his goodness, Lord willing, uses a spirit-filled preacher to preach a spirit-filled message so that there's a spirit-filled response. After being reproved and rebuked, a faithful preacher is to bring exhortations in love and encouragement to promote spiritual change in conjunction with the Word and the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in someone's life. And this is how preaching works in the life of the church, in the life of of believers. I want to take a moment to share an illustration with you. And all of us were dead in our transgressions without hope and without God, right? And the picture in my mind as I, I think about it is one where I'm cast away. I'm completely lost. I am at the bottom of the ocean, right? Because it's a fitting place so far as God has separated us from our sins, right? Our sins are, are buried, right? But as a sinner, as one without hope, I was at the bottom. I was on the floor, and I was shackled, and I was chained to several tons of concrete. And I'm dead. I got nothing because I am nothing. And I'm down there on the bottom. And it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Unless God intervenes. And He does. And He does. And we, we celebrate the reality that God would come and do what only he could do. That the Savior would come and be able in, in a divine capacity to go down to retrieve us and to bring us up and to have the strength, the impossible strength that does not exist on a human level to bring us to the surface and to breathe life back into us breathe life into us, and then break the chains of the weight of that sin. Break it and free us, right? To be free. Not only that, but to promise us, to promise us that we're, we're safe and that we're secure in Him forever. And in many ways, um, I think this is fitting because the world says that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so when they see that, it is foolishness. And so if we were to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ putting on a, a life preserver on us, right, while we're out at the sea, right, well, putting on, you know, th that would probably really reflect the world's foolishness and, and how they view the gospel message. But it's what he does. And you know what he does? We're no longer a slave to sin. We have life and we become a slave to righteousness. We, we become um, owners. We're, we're his children. We're in him. And in many ways, you know what the Lord Jesus Christ does? He, he shares with us that there, there, there's land and that you're in the sea and he, he wants us to swim to the shoreline, okay? He, we have a, a life preserver, and not only this, but there's an undercurrent, all right? Even though it's in the turbulent sea and the water is really the sea of sin, okay? It really is. There's an undercurrent of his love that is pushing us towards the land, that is pushing us towards the place of rest, really, eternal rest in him. And we have the opportunity, right, to, to obey him 
and to, to swim towards him. And I think sw- swimming is an excellent illustration because good swimmers, Olympic swimmers, you know what, the, 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 the people who are really fast, they have the ability to rise out of the water. And the faster swimmers are the people who can elevate, right, above the water. And that's what Christ has done for us. He has rescued us out of us when our lives were submerged in sin, that we were dead, right? And now he, he strengthens us, and he enables us to rise above that sin and swim, and, and swim to, towards, to, towards the land. But we can never be separated, right? There is no perfect sanctification. There is no, uh, on this side of the cross, and that gets taught in some churches, believe it or not, right? We still, the battle with sin is real, right? Do we all get that, right? Is the battle with sin real? It is, right? And lust and temptation, it's there. And what God does, and I will even go so far as to say this, that the indicatives of Scripture, right, indicate that's what they do that's what indicatives do they indicate what god has done for us and what he could only do and god's glorified right he has he can glorify himself and he receives that glory right but there's also a balance that there are there are commands that were given as believers and he instructs us, and, and anyone who's swam, and um, outside of my, my brother Nate Roth, because I've seen his posts on Facebook, I, I know he, he swims for exercise, but um, he's shaking his head right now. But I know that a lot of people who, who have swam, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. I, I, I find it very difficult, right? But, but from a spiritual standpoint, this is what I'm trying to communicate, is that God gives us the strength, Right? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Temptation is common to man. But morning by morning, new mercies we'll see. Great is his faithfulness. Great is the grace that he's going to provide. And to some degree, as believers, we have a responsibility to appropriate the grace that he provides with the troubles of the day. Right? We do that. And in obedience, because we, we, we're swimming towards him. We are, are working, and, and our efforts, and at the human level, when we describe them, they're so meager. Are they not? They're so meager. But there's something that happens. He, he's glorified. He's glorified when we do that. He's glorified in our lives when we respond with that. And could he, could he provide the explanation if, if it was all about soteriology and if it was all about just us being saved, could he not have just said, the current will take you home? The current will take you to the land. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what the, the commands of Scripture instruct us to do. His um, indicative work, his monergistic work, provides an, uh, an opportunity for us, when we are born again, to work synergistically with God, right? To, when, when, as we grow and mature and obey, as we develop as, as swimmers, as we get stronger, that we can continue to rise above our our sin and we can glorify God in the process. And I think it's such a beautiful picture. I think it was, you know, Paul at the end of his life said that he's, he's finished the race. He's fought the good fight. Okay? It was a battle. And preaching the word with precision... And how it works in our sanctification is really reflected so well in this verse. Why? Because when it's preached, we receive reproof. If we're swimming the wrong way, right, we get, in, we get correction through the preaching of the word. We get straightened out. 
if we're in rebellion and we're actually saying, you know what, I'm gonna, somebody came by in a boat and I'm going to get on that boat and we don't know where it's going to take you, right? They might, you know, there could be a rebuke that comes along. And I know I'm getting a lot out of this illustration. But, but it's true. But then there's also exhortations and praise his holy name. Exhortations that we receive from God. Where he encourages us and he provides a word and, and he says, keep up the good work. You, you, you're, you're doing it. You're getting it done. And we come in to the fellowship and we hear the preaching and we see how God is working and changing us. So much to the point where you might even, you know, you're just somebody in your care group shares with you about how they're seeing you growing and how you're maturing. And did you know that six months ago, you would have totally freaked out if this happened. But you know what you did? You responded in faith. You responded in trust. It's so encouraging to see. Well, verse 2 finishes by saying that there's reproofing, rebuking, exhorting that goes on with great patience and instruction or complete patience and instruction and God is patient to give us time to learn and certainly those who have experienced instructing their own children know that patience is required some kids learn quickly and some of them need just a little bit more time don't they and so it is with believers in the church patience and faithful instruction must go hand in hand and will be needed for those who preach and teach I've been so encouraged the few times that I've been able to go in the children's ministries and to see the teachers that are working with the kids, how they're, they're patient and how um, their instruction, didache in the Greek, they're, they're, they're bringing it um, time and time again, sometimes when it doesn't even appear like they're listening. I've been so blessed to interact with, with care group leaders who, are, um, who, who have shared just the, the, really the progress that people are, are making as they've brought the word to bear in a person's life to help them face some of the challenges that they're going through. And it's a beautiful expression of patience and instruction. Well, there's five questions and five answers. Who is responsible for preaching the word? What does the ministry consist of? When should it take place? We've looked at all those. How is it practiced? We've just considered that. And our fifth question, why is it so important? And verse 3 through 5 share the reason for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And there's speculation as to who the pronoun they is referencing and who Paul might have in mind when he wrote these verses. Some commentators believe it could be a general reference to the unbelieving world and others that the group of people are, is a group of people that only Paul and Timothy were aware of that are not named but merely reference. And regardless of who they are, this is the second time that the Holy Spirit guided Paul to warn Timothy of people who would go astray. And it serves as an example for us that there will be people, there will be people who will struggle with the preaching of sound doctrine. And in chapter 3, just one chapter earlier, in the exact same verses, 1 through 5, Paul had provided Timothy saying, listen, in the last days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and he goes on and he just gives this list. And then the verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. It was a terrible reality that Timothy had to face. And if chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 were proven true, excuse me, in Timothy's time, we can only imagine the potential challenge that today's climate presents. People are turning away from the truth and embracing myths regularly. Sin is minimized. Man is elevated. God's only attribute is love. And the church 
continues to be infected and overcome by the unhealthy diet that has reached a toxic level. Walt Kaiser, faithful theologian, shared this 30 years ago. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, as the current line has it, junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. Simultaneously, a worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God, and he cites Amos 8.11, continue to run wild and almost unabated in most quarters of the church. The Apostle Paul finishes our passage today with the last exhortation that he would ever give to Timothy. The last one on record that we have from the Apostle Paul. He goes on to share some personal matters after, but this really, uh, these really are the last words of instruction as it related to Timothy spiritually. Verse 5 says this, But you, Timothy, be sober, be sober-minded is what this is saying. Right-headed in all things. Endure hardship. Endure suffering. Those things are going to happen. Those things that I've warned you about, those peop- the, the, these people, m- men and, and people turning from the truth and not embracing do- doctrine, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But endure it. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Be a gospel preacher. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the full counsel of God. Cornerstone is a special church. God in his faithfulness has in every way allowed this pulpit to esteem him and to have a high view of him and to have a high view of the word. And may the pillar of preaching and teaching the word with precision continue to uphold all the ministries of our church all the days ahead. All the days ahead. I know you praise God for that, as do I. Thank you for giving me a little bit of additional time. And we might be having our snacks out in the parking lot now. (laughs) Pray with me. Gracious Father, we celebrate the reality of what your word has blessed us with as it relates to the preaching of your word. And in every way, I feel inadequate. And if it was up to me, and if it was up to my own words, I would be. But in your grace, you have allowed me the opportunity to rely on the guidance of your Holy Spirit, the giftedness of the Spirit, the sufficiency of the word provided by the Spirit that we can proclaim truth and that we can rightly handle and divide the word. We can, as your word says, cut it straight. I thank you for our church and such a biblically literate group of people who in many ways reflect the Bereans. I pray that you would allow all the ministries to have accountability and that there would be a willingness and an eagerness for people to help teachers grow and that we would all continue to grow, both teacher and student, that we would grow together, that you would cultivate that within the ministry of our church. We thank you for 
providing us this room this day, um, the opportunity to worship. We ask now that as we turn our attention towards each other and towards our families, that you would bless our week and that you would encourage our hearts with your faithfulness. We look forward to the next time that we can gather. We ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.